Hey everyone, what's up? It is Jeff from Modern Combat and Sorrow Magazine, and welcome to podcast episode number 260. And you know what that means. Break out the calculator. That's five years, baby. Five years we've been doing this podcast now. This is our anniversary, and I want to thank all of you out there for all of your support over the years and all of those five-star reviews. Much, much appreciated. Keep them coming. And what better way to celebrate than to give away some guns, right? I don't want to give away too much just yet, but let me just tease you a little bit and hint that five of you are going to be walking away with some military-grade firepower. And it's not going to cost you a thing to get it either, right? Now, more details are coming up this week in our newsletter, so make sure that you definitely keep your eye out for that email that's going to be headed your way. Now, for this week's broadcast, we're more about you keeping your guns. And I talked with Jacob Paulson of ConcealedCarry.com about hidden legal traps that many gun owners unknowingly fall prey to. And I got to tell you, there's some real eye-openers in here for y'all. It's all coming right up, but first, don't forget to grab this week's free show notes, including our handy-dandy one-page cheat sheet covering all the main points. All you have to do is head on over to www.mcsmagazine.com slash 260, that's 260, and download it all absolutely free. And now, let's get into our interview. Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. Okay, let me tell you a true story about a firearms instructor who was doing private security work after hours in Utah, which is one of the most free and gun-friendly states in the nation when it comes to your firearms rights. After a long shift at a private event, he was pulled over probably because he wavered a little bit between lanes because he was drowsy. And the cop who pulled him over didn't seem to think anything was amiss until the instructor informed him of the fact that he was an armed CCW holder. The instructor asked how the cop would like him to proceed. Normal stuff, right? Well, the cop seized and disassembled the instructor's Glock 17 while the instructor was made to get out and wait with his hands on the hood of the car. The instructor started asking questions after that. He knew and followed the law and he was very respectful. He was given his gun back and was free to go, except, of course, that the gun was in pieces. Now, this could have gone very badly if the instructor didn't know the law. Worse, if he had been traveling in a state that was not gun-friendly, he might have fallen prey to one of the hidden traps that gun-hating states sprinkle around their legal system to snare law-abiding gun owners. These traps can be as simple as changes in gun laws that you don't know about, but they're still going to make you a criminal all the same. As I've said many times before, ignorance of the law is not the basis of a not guilty plea. In fact, you could be staring down the barrel of up to 10 years in prison time for simple mistakes that led you into a trap. So what are these hidden legal traps? And how do you avoid them? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat Serial Magazine and executive director of the New World Patriot Alliance with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. And with us today to discuss gun laws as you travel the country and other little loopholes that, that can snare you out there is my friend Jacob Paulson. Jacob, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Always good to have you on, man. Um, listen, everybody, uh, this is a special treat here. I mean, this is somebody who has experience across several different states when it comes to experiences with gun owners. And um, this is, I'm really interested to hear some of the case studies that you've looked at and how these, uh, how these have come out on the other side of where we want them to come out as gun owners. But listen, everybody, if you, if you haven't caught our, our previous interviews with Jacob, he's the president of concealedcarry.com, which is a primary fixture in the online tactical firearms training arena, as well as a provider for both in-person and online firearm training for American gun owners. Now, the company is currently teaching in-person classes in over 25 states, 
with a team of more than 55 instructors. Jacob is also an NRA certified instructor and range safety officer, a USCCA certified instructor and training counselor, affiliate instructor for Next Level Training, graduate and certified instructor for the Law of Self-Defense, and a Glock and SIG certified armor. Now you can learn more about Jacob and his training and his company over at www.concealedcarry.com. Should be pretty easy for everybody to be able to, to remember that, okay? Um, all right, Jason, let's go ahead and get started. Um, my, Jason, my, my challenge to you was like, I, I know there's all kinds of things that, you know, as gun owners, we bitch and complain about with, um, you know, little, little loopholes that are out there that we're supposed to remember every little tiny law that we could get in trouble for. And I, I'm just, I was really curious just with your experience across with all of your instructors across all these different states and all the different feedback that you get and all the horror stories that you hear for people that think they're doing the right thing, but all of a sudden end up on the wrong side of the law when we're just, you know, just trying to protect ourselves, right? So what I, what I was, wanted to hear from you was like basically your top five list of those hidden little legal loopholes that gun owners probably aren't aware of that could get them in trouble. And then what can we do to kind of make, bring these out in center so that people are more educated about it and can avoid these same mistakes? So, um, so let me go ahead and just, we'll just start with number one. What is, um, what is this hidden, hidden legal trap number one? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. You know, we could get really specific. Like we could talk about some really specific weird laws, like how in Wisconsin, you know, you, if you don't have a concealed carry permit, you can't have a gun in a hotel or in New Jersey, hollow points are illegal. But instead, you know, with these five, what I've decided to do is kind of focus on, I'll call them higher level things that, that can trip you up across lots of different states. And so the first one, I think this is one that a lot of people just don't think about is restaurants that serve alcohol. Now you might intuitively understand that, sure, you know, probably Probably in some of those horrible gun states like New Jersey or California or whatever, you know, you can't go into an establishment that serves alcohol with a gun. And that might be true about some of those states. But what you may not realize is that a lot of actually very pro-gun friendly states, states that we would traditionally think of as being very pro-gun, also have restrictions when it comes to, to establishments that serve alcohol. Florida and Texas are two good examples. Florida and Texas are very you know, per perceivably very pro-gun states, and yet both of them have laws in the books that make it illegal under certain circumstances in certain establishments to serve alcohol for you to be present, you know, with the possession of a firearm. That's always a really big, uh, that's always a question that I have, um, and we deal with this a lot. And um, yeah, I think for a lot of gun owners, especially um, who are not really like embedded in the law and just like really studying it all the time, it, it, none of this seems to ever make any sense, right? Like, okay, it's, it's an establishment where we know, especially in Texas, and I'm a Texas, um, I, I'm a Texas resident. You know, we had the uh, the famous, you know, Luby's massacre, like way, way back when. And so this is a, a location where, you know, you go in, now they don't serve alcohol there, but we know that these are types of places where there are masses of people where somebody can just go in and start, start shooting, or it, uh, it could be a domestic violence thing. And so, it's always that really like uh, that, that tug of war, like, man, like I feel naked without my gun and feeling, being able to feel like I can protect myself everywhere. And yet these establish, I think that is probably the number one question that we get is, am I allowed to have a certain number of drinks? Am I allowed to I'm going to, so bars are, are typically the, um, the, the focus of it, but, but you're saying even like the restaurants, the yeah. restaurants, if they serve alcohol, there could also be an issue and people need to know about that. 
Yeah, te- and Texas is better than some. Texas, at least, the way that the Texas, the, the, you know, that particular state's law is written is that the establishment has an obligation to post something, right? So you can walk into the local Applebee's or, you know, local bar or whatever it is, and you can look for a sign. And that sign should be indicative of one of three different potential categorical uh, you know, prohibitions, right? They have the 30 out six, 30 out seven, and you know, one other sign I already forgot now. Uh, so, so at least in Texas, the law is written such that the establishment has to put something on, on notice, right? But there are other states, Arizona is another one. I mean, talk about a state you think of as being pro-gun, Arizona, constitutional carry, you know, everything you would think about pro-gun. And yet they have restrictions relative to establishments to serve alcohol. And the establishment may not be you know, such that they put up a notice and you're just expected to know that regardless if you're from Arizona or not. Same thing with Florida. You know, we had the very high profile Pulse nightclub shooting uh, outside of uh, Orlando a couple of years ago. That was in a nightclub. And in that nightclub, uh, it's such that they derive enough of their revenue on a ratio basis from the sale of alcohol and the way Florida, sell, uh, Florida law is written that made that bar, that establishment, that nightclub. Uh, you know, pro- prohibited to firearms. Mm, so yeah. yeah, that's that's one that catches people off guard, I think, because when you go to a state that's very, you know, notoriously anti-gun, you're on your guard. But when you go to a place like Texas or Arizona or Florida or others like that, that, that might catch you. Yeah, they pretty much issue us guns at the border when we cross over. <laughs> so when we become a resident. So all right, awesome. So, okay, so what is, um, what's another hidden, uh, what's hidden legal trap number two that uh, gun owners might not be aware of? Yeah, duty to notify. So duty to notify is the term we use to refer to a potential uh, legal obligation when you're confronted by law enforcement to disclose that you're armed and or have a permit. So a large number of states require that you, uh, pr- you know, produce a permit or that you tell the officer you have a permit if asked, right? So for example, here in Colorado where I am, uh, if I'm pulled over and officer says, do you have a, a firearm in the car? I have a legal duty to answer that question correctly. You know, I can't, I can't, you know, evoke a right of silence. I have to say, yes, I do. But there are a handful of states, some of them being very pro-gun again, that actually have a legal duty to notify, meaning that when the officer pulls me over and says, hey, do you know why I pulled you over, son? I must, by law, disclose to that officer that I have a concealed firearm permit. And again, states that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think of, like Texas, Alaska, Arkansas, uh, three states uh, that are, are examples of that where you have a duty to proactively notify the law enforcement officer of your possession of a gun or a permit. Let me ask your personal opinion on this, because being a Texas resident, I'm aware of that for, for my state. Um, it actually, like, actually usually helps you get out of tickets, by the way. <laughs> Not a license, but, um, but it probably doesn't hurt. Informally, informally, right? But, um, but, when, I, but I, when I've traveled, like when I've, when I've driven across country and I have my firearm with me, um, not knowing, and I'll admit to this, that I have not done my due diligence in say, okay, I'm going to be going through these five states. What are the laws in those states as far as if I am pulled over? And so I've always personally um, just said it anyway. I've always kind of played dumb. Like I, I, I was up here in Illinois. I got a ticket here in Illinois. I was, I was speeding. I wasn't speeding because I didn't know the, uh, never mind. I'll, I'll get out. I'll get away from my excuses. But nonetheless, it was, I said, what I say all the time, which is, hey, I'm a, I'm a Texas resident. I don't know, don't know what the laws are here, but I must inform you. In Texas, I would have to inform you that um, that I am a concealed carry uh, license holder and I am not carrying or I am carrying right there. And so um, I've found that in the past that that has um, been appreciated by the police officer. 
um, in Illinois, which is not necessarily seen as the best gun-friendly state. Um, didn't get me out of ticket, didn't get me anything. In fact, it might've got me. Actually, I think the police officer was a little bit sympathetic to me, but didn't seem to help me at all there. But nonetheless, in your personal opinion, yeah, I think most people know what to do. I'm sorry, Jeff, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, like, it, it, and I, to me, I'm, I'm thinking, well, maybe it would, it would never hurt to be able to say, in, in other words, it might create that bond, that tactical bond, I call it, right? Like, hey, I'm kind of one of you. I'm, you know, I train with my firearm too, sort of a thing. I'm part of the in crowd. And, but not to try and get out of the ticket. I'm just saying, like, it would, it would make sense to create that, establish that rapport with them that way. However, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like maybe in a not so gun friendly state, maybe that would, and, and you're not, and you don't have the, the duty to notify that it would actually be a strike against you. Like maybe it, you would get hassled more. I don't really know. I mean, this, this story I gave in the beginning about the, the guy in uh, the um, operator in Utah is a gun friendly state. And that was one where he told him and he, you know, it was kind of like a hassle. So yeah. I don't know what, what's your opinion? Should, should you always just tell them out of courtesy or would you, um, would you? I think it's a hard one. I think, you know, within your local state, it's probably pretty easy to figure out the answer. Ask a couple of instructors, go to your local gun range, ask those guys, and you're probably going to very quickly kind of get a sense for the local culture and sense and what you should do. But when you're traveling, that is a challenge because you might find yourself in one of various you know, situations. You might be in a state that has a legal duty to notify and you don't say anything. They find out somehow and now you've you've broken the law and that's a problem. So knowing whether or not there's a duty to retreat is a good first step or duty to retreat, <laughs> different question. Whether or not there's a duty to notify is a good first step forward, right? To just know, do I have a legal obligation to do so? The second thing I might ask myself is, am I following the law? Am, is, it, is it potentially true that I am, I am doing something bad and naughty here? Because, you know, just last year, we had a, a, a woman in Pennsylvania who crossed the border just barely from Pennsylvania into New Jersey, got pulled over, did the thing she was always trained to do, told the officer she had a concealed handgun permit and a gun and was arrested and charged with the illegal possession of a handgun in New Jersey. So, you know, she, she got caught off guard. She didn't even realize she'd crossed the border. Now she's, she's in prison, right? That's a problem. And Governor Christie's not there to pardon everybody anymore. So, it, it, you know, that, that's the next thing to say is, well, if, am I doing anything wrong? And if the answer is, well, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I might be doing something wrong. And there's no legal duty to notify. I might just keep my mouth shut, to be perfectly frank, uh, because I don't want to stir up a hornet's nest. Now, uh, on the same token, uh, is there a, an advantage? Is there an argument in favor of notifying law enforcement, even when you have no duty to do so? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, for one, if, if they're going to find out eventually, way better they find out from me than the computer uh, or a search or something else, or, or from observing something through the window. So I'm generally inclined, when I, when I feel very confident about the environment I'm in, I'm confident that I'm following all the laws to notify the law enforcement officer proactively. I think that's going to be to my best advantage. And, and that's, just, that's just how it is. So yeah, I think, I think it, it, it's not an easy answer, right? I think that you have to play the environment a little bit. I think you need to know the laws. You need to know whether or not you have a duty to notify. Uh, but certainly where I think it's a where I think I'm following all the laws, I'm doing everything right, I think it's better for me to tell the, on, the law enforcement officer. A lot of states maintain, all, all states really maintain a database of their concealed carry permit holders, but some of those states share access to those databases. And in some cases, it's tied to your driver's license record. So, you know, if I get pulled over in the state of Wyoming, even though I live in Colorado, Wyoming State Patrol, when they run my driver's license and they pull information from a Colorado database, that information might come with it and show I have a concealed carry permit. So I always would prefer that officer find out from me than the computer. 
computer. That's always going to be to my preference. And we have to remember that, yes, that when the officer finds out you have a firearm and or a concealed carry permit, does that mean you might have a little bit more of a hassle? Yes, but that, that could be just a matter of procedure. That's not necessarily a matter of malice. So, you know, that's just the way it might be. It might be that, you know, Utah Patrol, Utah State Patrol, by policy, will pull you out of the car. They will every single time, and they will disarm you, and then they will finish the traffic stop, put you back in the car, and rearm you, hand you your gun. That's their procedure. There's no malice. That's just what their department regulations are. So, you know, play it by ear a little bit, but being informed is the key. Wow. Yeah, a lot of good information there. It is, uh, it is tricky. Yeah, and I'm of the same mind you are. It seems to make sense. But I'm curious also what some of our listeners will, um, will have to say about that. I know we have a lot of police officers that listen to our podcast also. So I, I really want to make sure I get everybody's, uh, everybody's own comments there. So let us know what you think as well. Um, listen, everybody, we have been talking with Jacob Paulson of concealedcarry.com about the hidden, hidden legal traps many gun owners mistakenly fall prey to, and how to make sure that you are not one of them. And we have our next three traps coming right up, but first, check out this special message. What if everything you knew about how to stop a violent attacker with your gun was wrong? Discover the advanced tactics you must know now to protect yourself and those you love with a firearm. Check out our free book, Stopping Power Secrets. Inside, you'll find such no-hold-barred shockers as one, the three most common myths and misinformation shoveled out by movies and gun range know-it-alls that could get you killed in a real-life gunfight. Two, the cold, hard truth about your personal weapon's ability to be a one-shot man-stopper. Three, what coroners know about selecting the right ammo for your firearm that you don't. Four, and the simple training trick used by Abrams tank crews and commercial airline pilots that will prepare you for a real attack even better than your best day at the range. Don't place your family's safety in the hands of Hollywood fairy tales and hearsay. Claim your free copy of Stopping Power Secrets now now at www.stoppingpowersecrets.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Jacob Paulson of ConcealedCarry.com discussing sneaky legal traps that could land you as a gun owner in the hoosgow if you make these common mistakes. Yes, I said it, the hoosgow. <laughs> I'm, I'm channeling John Wayne right now. Um, so let's go ahead and ju- jump back into the interview here. Um, so we've, we've gone over two of these now, Jacob. So uh, what, what, is, what is another hidden legal trap that gun owners can fall prey to? Duty to retreat. So this is a very misunderstood legal concept. So I'm going to try and give the 30-second broad explanation, then I'll clarify the legal trap. So in any given state, you may or may not have a legal requirement to retreat if safely able from a threat before using force. So, you know, that, that's the concept. Now, what is the opposite of duty to retreat? Well, the opposite is stand your ground. So that's a legal uh, term that more people are familiar with, though generally most of the context in which we hear it, it's being used incorrectly. So a stand your ground is a legal doctrine that, that says basically you have no duty to retreat, right? If you are faced with a threat, you may use force in your self-defense, even if you could have retreated from that threat safely. So there are 37 of the 50 states that have stand your ground doctrine. Uh, so th- in those 37 states, you know, you, you have no duty to retreat, but there are 13 that do have a duty to retreat. And they're not the ones you might think of, you know, for example, California, you know, Maryland, Massachusetts, those are all states where you have no, no duty to retreat. California has been a stand your ground state for over 100 years. And so we might not think of that because we traditionally think of it as being very anti-gun. But then you have very pro- 
uh, gun states, seemingly like Ohio, Minnesota, Maine. Those are states that do have a duty to retreat before using force. So if I'm traveling and I'm in Ohio, for example, I was in Ohio earlier this year, and uh, I'm faced with some sort of lethal threat in a restaurant or on the streets or in public or whatever it might be at the gas station, I have a legal duty in those states if safely able to attempt to retreat from the threat before using force in my defense. Wow. Yeah, I have a... I have some notes. I'm right taking down notes on this and there's uh, something that came to mind with this. And I'll, uh, I always at the end now, what I'm doing is I'm giving like my the three, the three main things I took out of it. And um, so I've got, definitely got something to say about this. It's a big kind of a little bit of a wake up call for me here. Um, but that's really good. I mean, there's a, there, you're right. There's a lot of confusion over, um, over this, I think with a lot of people. So, um, so let's go ahead and go into what is the, uh, we're on number four now, right? Hidden legal trap number four. Yeah. Number four, air travel is universal until it's not. So I think people get in big trouble with air travel because anyone can go to the TSA website and you can look up the TSA regulations about how to uh, travel and check a firearm on a domestic flight in the U.S. Uh, the TSA is very specific. They have very specific instructions. We're not going to get into that. But needless to say, uh, it would seem very obvious and simple. And, and if you were here in my city, if you were in Denver, Colorado, and you went to Denver International Airport, and you were on a, you know, going to Boston, for example, and you showed up and you did exactly what was on the TSA website, no more, no less, you'd be fine. Uh, here at, at DIA, that'd be perfectly fine. But when you get to Boston, and you show up and you do your business in Boston and then you come back to the Boston airport the next day to fly back to Denver and you do the exact same thing at the Boston International Airport that you did at the Denver International Airport, exactly what the TSA told you to do, no, no more, no less, you're going to go to jail. You're going to be in big doo-doo. And so this is a huge trap that gets people in trouble because we think in our minds, we perceive that the airport is the jurisdiction of the TSA, and that is only half true. The TSA is the legal authority beyond a point of security, right? Beyond a security checkpoint. But, but the airports are not owned by the federal government. You know, DIA, Denver International Airport, is owned by the city and county of Denver. And Denver City Police is the you know, ultimate legal authority there because uh, it's their property. They own the airport. That's how that works. And so, so, yes, it's true that the TSA does have some guidelines, and those guidelines do have to be followed universally on all U.S. flights, all domestic U.S. flights in this country. However, individual airports, due to their local jurisdiction, could have their own laws, procedures, or policies above and beyond the TSA guidelines that could get you in some major trouble. So is, do you have an example of something that um, but might be not allowed at one uh, airport that might be allowed at another? Is there, is there like sure. some, some example of that? Yeah, and, and I'll add that in addition to airports, it could also be an airline thing. So specific airlines could have their own policies as well. When you, when you put a, a bag you know, with, with luggage and guns in it under, uh, you know, in, the, in the cargo area of an airplane, that airplane is owned by American Airlines. American Airlines also has the right to have policies relative to what's in that bag or how it's in that bag. So the TSA, uh, for example, uh, makes it very clear that ammunition could be in any, you know, any container, small container designed to hold ammunition, uh, or it can be in the magazines, as long as those magazines are next to the gun in, the, in a locked hard-sided container. Hmm. But a specific airline might say, 
Yes, that's true. The TSA would allow that, but we do not. Where a specific airport might say, yes, any hard-sided container works, but for us, it has to be steel. It has to be metal. It can't be a hard plastic. Um, it could be uh, also, you know, I'll give an example like JFK or LaGuardia. Those are both New York City airports, and New York City is, is, is notoriously anti-gun anti or difficult. You know, in order to check a gun at any of those two airports, you're going to have to in advance of going to the airport, go to an NYPD precinct and fill out paperwork. And it's going to have to be notarized. And you're going to have to have references from friends about why you're a good person. I mean, it's harder than applying for the last job you applied for. So it, it takes time and paperwork. And the consequence is three days in jail, min minimum, mandatory, three days in jail. So it's a serious thing. I'll give you just a quick example. We had a, a person once who was flying from Florida to Pennsylvania. And they knew that the airport they were checking in at in Florida was copacetic, no problem. And that the airport in Pennsylvania that they were going to check in at on their way back home would have been fine. But on the on way, on the way to Pennsylvania, they were rerouted. Uh, so I don't know if it was a plane problem or weather, I have no idea. But they were rerouted to a New York City airport, I think it was LaGuardia. And uh, the flight uh, that they were going to be put onto to get back to Pennsylvania was not going to be till the next morning. So the airline puts the person up in a hotel. And then they, re you know, of course, they have to retrieve their checked baggage, right? And then they return to the airport the following day and have to go through security again. And so, of course, this person just does the same thing they did in Florida or the same thing they would have done in Pennsylvania, but now they're doing it at, in, in New York, three days in jail. Uh, that, that's, wow. that's a no-go. And they didn't, you know, they didn't even know, they didn't plan to be at that airport uh, under those circumstances, but you know, due to unforeseen circumstances, they were, and they suffered for it. Yeah. Yeah, I've had, I mean, I travel quite a bit, and when I'm checking my guns, it's amazing just how, sometimes how little information the um, the clerks, or I don't know, not, not really clerks, but like the ticket, the people at the ticket counter, some of them are just like have no clue whatsoever to do. They have to get somebody to help out or whatever. Some of them will just try and kind of worm their way through it, thinking that they know how to do it or they remember how to do it because they've done it a couple times or so. And this last time I was in Texas, and it was the first time that um, the, they made me like kind of rack the slide, show, like show that all the ammo's there. And it actually made me uncomfortable being surrounded yeah, by a bunch of people. I had four guns. I had four pistols with me in a case. And here I am like, you know, racking the slide on four pistols in front of a bunch of people in Texas. And it was just, it was unsettling for me. I can only imagine other people around me were also unsettled by it also. And that's the only time that I've ever had that happen. So I think even for people to understand that, you know, it, it, you might have somebody, it, no matter what the rules are and the laws are, um, you might get somebody out there that is really um, like they don't know it themselves. Mm -hmm. And so when you're traveling, it, again, I'm, this kind of keeps coming back to one of my, my points I put down here is to do more due diligence on what. Now, if you're rerouted somewhere, it's, it's a different story, but you should know not just your, your, uh, your departure destination or your departure location, but your destination as well and what it's going to be like coming back. So, um, and I, and I can't say that I've done that. So, um, right. well, I think you got to be willing to, to adapt to, I had a situation I was checking. I was at, I was at six hour Academy. So obviously I had guns and I was flying home. I was checking in at the airport in Manchester, New Hampshire, and my flight was canceled. So I'm sitting at the gate flights canceled and the ticket, the, the, I don't know, gate agent, I think would be a correct term says, you know, line up here. We're going to take care of everybody. And so I get in line, I get up to the, the ticket counter and she says, okay, you know, where are you going to Denver? Okay. Yep. Here's your name. Got your info. Great. No problem here. And she hands me a, a, a voucher for a taxi cab. And she says, this voucher will get you all the way to Boston. And I've put you on a flight out of Boston in two hours from now. 
Now for Manchester, New Hampshire, apparently that's a viable drive in a taxi. I wouldn't know. Uh, but she says, here's, here's your voucher. Go get in a taxi, drive to Boston, and here's your, you know, here's your boarding pass uh, for Boston. And I said, no. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I, I can't check in in Boston. I have guns. I just said it very simply. And she was like, oh, okay, no problem. I'll put you in a hotel and you'll fly out of Manchester tomorrow. Wow. So we got to be willing to adapt, right? We got we to recognize that, wait, she's, she's trying to do her job. She's trying to get me to Denver faster. Yeah. But if I do what she's telling me to do, I will be in a Boston jail tonight. Man, that's such a good point. Really, really great point. Good stuff, man. Okay, get, what, hit me with number five here. What is it, brother? Number five, vehicle possession by non-permittees is a big, ugly mess. So let me clarify what I mean by vehicle possession by non-permittee. Most of us are familiar with the concept of reciprocity. If you have a concealed carry permit, I'm, I'm very confident you understand conceptually that some states honor your permit and some states do not. You probably have an app like, like our company's app on your phone or something, and you go check it and you're like, okay, my permit's valid in these states, not in those states. Now, what you don't know is what in the world are you supposed to do in a state where it's not valid? So you mentioned recently, Jeff, that you were in Illinois and you got pulled over there, right? So if I, Illinois is a, a common example because it's, it does not honor my permit, but all the states around it do. So maybe I'm driving through Illinois to get to, I don't know, Indiana or Ohio or something. And so, you know, before I hit Illinois, I'm in, a per, I'm in states that honor my permit. Uh, when I get through Illinois, on the other side of it, I'll be in a state that honors my permit. So what do I do with the gun when I'm in Illinois? And obviously, Illinois is not the only one. I'm using that as an example, but, uh, you know. California doesn't honor anyone's permits. Uh, a great number of states in the Northeast don't honor anyone's permits. South Carolina does not honor my permit. So, you know, it's not uncommon to find yourself in a state that doesn't honor your permit. And so the question would be, well, how do I possess this gun in my vehicle legally when I'm in that state, when I'm in a state that doesn't honor my permit? And the short answer is, it's a mess. This is a complete disaster. And I think that a lot of firearm instructors actually do a disservice in trying to overly simplify this when it really can't be overly simplified. Um, so there's, there's really two levels of this, and I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and make this concise. Level one is, what does that specific state allow me to do? So in the case of Illinois, actually, believe it or not, despite it being perceived as a very anti-gun state, Illinois has very good uh, vehicle possession laws. You can have an, you know, an armed, chambered firearm on your person uh, in, while in your vehicle traveling through the state of Illinois. That's perfectly legal, uh, even though we might perceive it not being the case. So that would be layer one, right? Layer one is I can find out for this individual state, you know, South Carolina, Illinois, or California, three examples I mentioned, I can find out what does that state allow me to do uh, when I travel through um, you know, their state with a gun, knowing that they do not honor my permit. And we could talk about how that research could be done if we want. And then the second layer is uh, I, can, I can work with or follow the, the guidelines in Article 926A of the Firearm Owner Protection Act. And again, trying to be concise, the Firearm Owner Protection Act is a federal law signed by President Bush in 1986. And one of the articles of that act protects a gun owner's right to transport a firearm in this country within a vehicle. Now, there are certain conditions. You have to be starting in a place where you're allowed to have the gun. You have to be traveling to a place where you're allowed to have the gun. And so it only covers you in the middle between points A and point B. It only covers transportation, not vacation or leisure time or hanging out there for a while. So, you know, probably not going to take care of me if I, you know, hang out in Chicago for a couple of days, but it would cover me as I drive through Chicago. And there's, there's a distinct difference there. Um, the firearm has to be securely encased in a locked container and it has to be not readily accessible for immediate use. That's kind of the real quick summary of Article 926A. So if I don't want to do the research of what does Illinois allow me to do, if I don't want to do that, or I can't figure out the answer to the question, right, what will California allow me to do? 
What I do know is I can follow Article 926A of the Fire Motor Protection Act, often referred to as FOPA, FOPA. I can, fo I can follow 926A of FOPA, and that will protect me in all the states, so long as I'm traveling through that state to get somewhere else that, you know, where I'm okay, and so long as the firearm is you know, securely encased in a locked container, not, a re not readily accessible for immediate use from the passenger compartment. So, so you know, those, those are kind of two different approaches or ways to, to think of that. Now, what, one last caution, and then I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Jeff, and that is that if you think that the average beat cop who's going to pull you over for speeding in the state of, you know, insert here, Delaware, has any clue what Article 926A of the Fire Motor Protection Act is, you are extremely naive. Yeah. No kidding. And don't try sharpshooting the uh, the next officer that pulls you over to say, what don't you know about 92? No, no, not a good idea. Not a good idea. Yeah. Awesome. Man, it's really good stuff here. Um, and I think a lot of people out there um, that are con especially concealed carry uh, holders really need to uh, kind of look at this and see, okay, how much of this did you know? How much didn't you know? Let's talk real quick about, because um, most of this really comes down to your own research and it is your responsibility to, um, to do the research. As I said before, claiming ignorance of the law is not going to get you out of, out of uh, hot water necessarily. So you need to make sure that you do this diligence. You mentioned that you have an app. Are these things that people can use your app for that they will actually be able to go there and see, okay, I'm going between these three states, I'm driving through these three states, and let me go ahead and look those up? Yeah, so we have some, yeah, so we have a couple of free resources. The app is a free resource. Also, just on our website, you can go to concealedcarry.com and you can click on laws in the main menu there. And both in the app and on the website, you can just get a very quick legal summary for any of the 50 states. You know, duty to notify law enforcement, yes, no. Duty to retreat, yes, no. Um, you know, vehicle possession by non-permittees, you know, how can it be done? So it's, it's a very fast and furious. It's meant to be uh, fast, quick to digest, but... Uh, that said, sometimes you got to go a little deeper than our quick summary allows. And sometimes you're in a place where you don't have internet access. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're traveling through the middle of Nebraska and that cop is following you, uh, you know, behind you and hasn't thrown on their lights yet, and you look at your phone to, to pull up our app and uh, you have no cell service and therefore our app doesn't work, that's not going to help you much. So, so those are free resources and they are available and they at very least are going to you know, give you a superficial level kind of glance at what you need to know if you check in advance or if you're in a place with internet connection. The second resource we have is we have a book. It's called Legal Boundaries by State. Uh, we sell it on our site. I think, you know, starting retail is 20 bucks, though you can get the ebook for significantly less, less than that. And that's something you could keep in the car with you or you could have in advance and check before you hit the roadways. And we update it a couple times a year and it goes into... Uh, I'd say significantly more depth than the app or the website, but it's still pretty easy to peruse and just, you know, quick reference, you know, get it, get an answer to a question. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I have seen that book and it's a, it's a great resource. Great resource. Um, all right. Listen, everybody, uh, I'm going to go ahead and go through. This is something we've been uh, new. We've been doing where I give my top three tips that I've pulled out of this. Um, so number one, um, which I've been guilty of is to is to do more study of the states um, when I am traveling because I do drive a lot, I do uh, fly a lot, and so this applies both to driving through those states as well as I always just kind of um, get in my own world and I just figure you know what I'm not going to get pulled over. I do the speed limit eh, for the most part, and then um, you know I, so I'm not too worried about it. So I end up not really giving this as much serious consideration as I should. Slap on the hand. That's what I should do. And that includes the airports because I, I really hadn't really thought of, I've, I've always considered it just like the same process because the two places that I go in between the most, Illinois and Texas, 
I, I know what those processes are, but when I've gone to other places, um, I haven't been as conscious of, of what the laws are going to be before I get there. So I think I've just gotten lucky so far. Uh, number two that I got was the stand your ground versus duty to retreat. Um, I know the difference between those, but when I'm doing instruction, I'll get those, I'll get questions like this a lot when it comes up in the legal aspects. And I think I've just taken it too much um, for granted that uh, that people understand, like I understand now that it's it's more confusing, I think, because of case study that's been out there and people not understanding those. So I don't think as an instructor, I've given enough attention to when somebody asks a question about those, that I make sure one, that all of the students understand it and they're not just nodding their head up and down because they don't want to look stupid, but also that I specifically bring up the difference between those two things because they are often um, confused. So I think that's a real, that's a really good point there that I'm adding to my curriculum now. And then the other thing was about the, um, the federal law that uh, 926A um, that protects all states in a secure container. That, that is just a really good, just general piece of advice that people don't have to go too far down the rabbit hole about what they need to do if they are traveling with a firearm. But that's an advice you can give to a friend, like, look, you know, where you don't have to go through and, and do all the research. Um, just here's the here's what the uh, FOPA says and here's what you should go ahead and do just to be safe and That is a really good just kind of a general rule that people should look at if you're not Looking to do that kind of a deep research or if you're in a place that you don't really know about Always have the, the means to be able to be able to do that So if you're normally a concealed carry holder and you are out traveling make sure that you do have a case with you that And you do have a lock with you because that's not something you just kind of you know pull out of your butt one in one state uh, it's something you should have. So maybe just keep one of those in your trunk so that you can have that if you need it. So that's a, that's a really good point there too. Um, hey, uh, Jacob, this is, we didn't do this the last time and I was just going to just, just kind of uh, share this with you, but um, <laughs> just kind of surprise you with it. But we, we've been doing this thing now, a speed round where I'm going to ask you three um, kind of out of the topic questions and just get <laughs> your super fast response to it. So, um, so number one is what is your favorite sandwich? Ooh, my favorite sandwich. So I don't know if this is my favorite, but because it's new and different, I'll mention it that uh, there's this, this place in uh, Pittsburgh that's kind of famous called uh, Permanti Brothers. And this is somebody, oh, I was recently in Pittsburgh, someone told me how to try it out. And they have these sandwiches that have um, fries and coleslaw on the sandwich. The premise is that the old steel workers back in the day didn't have a very enough time for a lunch break. So they would put their, you know, their fries and all their sides on their sandwich and have one massive sandwich. So I had one of these uh, sandwiches from Permanti Brothers uh, earlier this year, and that was pretty dang cool. I've been, I've been to Pittsburgh. I, I was surprised where French, French fries just flow through there like a river. They put them <laughs> on everything. I had a salad with French fries on it. I don't even understand it. Anyway, um, question number two, what is uh, one skill that you suck at that you need more help with? It doesn't have to be firearms. But what's one thing that you really, um, you really wish you were much better at? I am not a detail-oriented person. Uh, so, for example, we are in the process right now of releasing a new video course that will be available on DVD and things like that from our company. And, you know, it's about three and a half hours of content. I went through and wrote down revisions for our editor. And it took me about mm, an hour and a half because I watched all the videos at 2x speed. And I wrote down about five revisions. And then our director of training went through the exact same content and had like three pages of revisions. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's why I, that's not my job. I'm really bad at detail oriented. I'm very efficient and very fast, but I am, I do not do a good job at paying attention or, or catching details of anything ever. Yeah. Amen. That's my wife tells me too. Um, okay. Number three, who was your childhood role model? Ooh. So a couple come to mind really quickly, but I'll just throw out Dale Murphy. 
Um, I'm a big fan of Del Murphy. You know, I was a Braves fan. I grew up in Wyoming where there were no professional sports teams, but of course we got TBS, which means of course we were Braves fans. And Del Murphy was uh, was a big role model for me because not only was he a good baseball player, but he was a good dude. And I think he had that reputation forever. And in fact, I recently saw an article on ESPN's website about where is Del Murphy now. And it talked about how he lives in a very modest, normal, like 2,000 square foot home. And if you walk into his house, you know, it talked about how there's no baseball cards on the wall. There's no posters or trophies or bats or helmets. Now, this guy's an MVP, uh, all-star. And when you walk into his house, he's just got pictures of his grandkids. And his grandkids, you know, they don't think of him as this, this famous baseball player. They think of him as, as Poppy, you know, who comes over and babysits them when mom and dad are busy. You know, like, so he, I just have a, a great amount of respect for Del Murphy, both when I was a child and looking at him as an athlete. But uh, I think that's one of those that so far has panned out for me for life. He, he's turned out to be a pretty good dude. That's awesome. That's a good story, man. Well, thank you so much. This is really, uh, really good information. I know everybody's going to get a lot out of this. And uh, listen, everybody, I'm going to have a link for the book. Uh, you can get some more information, um, the stuff that we talked about today in the resources section for the blog when we post this for the, uh, the broadcast. So go ahead and make sure you check that out. Click on over and check out all of the other training that they have over at concealedcarry.com. Check out Jacob's stuff. All right. And until our next Modern Combat and Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying prepare, train, and survive. <laughs>